This is a Socialist News and Views special report. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special report. The majority of this will be report back from two members of the anti-war committee, Twin Cities, who recently visited Venezuela. But I wanted to start out with a few recent news items. Venezuela supports Brazil and Argentina on a common currency as a Telesur English article, January 23rd, with no listed author. It quotes Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, quote, today, President Lula da Silva and President Alberto Fernandez announced that they will take steps to create a common currency for South America. I announced that Venezuela is ready and we support the initiative to create a Latin American and Caribbean currency, end quote. The article highlights this is within, quote, the framework of the great national march against the unilateral coercive measures imposed on Venezuela by the United States. April 27th, Al Jazeera has an article, very difficult challenges abound after summit on Venezuela by Cristina Noriega. The article says Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, convened the conference. It says neither Maduro's government or the opposition was invited to attend, but the U.S. sent, quote, a high-level delegation, end quote. It also says, quote, in a sign of his dwindling power, Guaido crossed into Colombia on Monday to protest the summit, end quote. But it says Colombian officials escorted Juan Guaido to the airport where he boarded a plane for Florida in the United States. Noriega writes, quote, the global energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine, the massive exodus, of more than 7 million migrants and refugees from Venezuela and a political shift towards the left in Latin America have put pressure on the international community to support the talks held in Mexico since 2021, end quote. The article also states, quote, the Maduro government outlined its conditions for restarting talks, including the release of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab, who was jailed in the U.S. on money laundering charges and the creation of a multi-billion dollar humanitarian fund that was agreed to in the last round of political discussions, end quote. U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba fuel migration, even as Biden restricts asylum seekers at border, is a segment from Democracy Now! on May 12th of this year. It says a group of House Democrats urged the Biden administration to lift sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba, which they say are driving people to leave the countries out of, quote, economic desperation, end quote. In this segment, Amy Goodman spoke with Venezuelan economist Francisco Rodriguez, who is the author of a report for the Center for Economic Policy and Research, called The Human Consequences of Economic Sanctions. That report had just recently been released. You can see more of that report in an interview on democracynow.org. U.S. will unblock Venezuela fund agreed in Mexico talks as the title of a May 21st article on venezuelaanalysis.com. The article by Andriana Chavez-Aleva says the U.S. has taken steps to offer assurances of releasing $3 billion of Venezuelan assets. It says, quote, in November 2022, the Maduro administration and the hardline opposition reached an agreement at the Mexico Dialogue Table to create a $3 billion social fund drawn from various Venezuelan seized assets to invest in education, healthcare, and infrastructure repairs. The UN will be in charge of distributing the money while a Venezuelan Joint Commission would follow and verify its correct implementation, end quote. At the time of this writing, the fund has not yet been created. The article reiterates the effect of U.S. levied sanctions as, quote, exacerbating an economic crisis and migration wave, end quote. Juan Guaido, the U.S.-backed Venezuelan opposition leader who I mentioned previously, fled to the U.S. last month 
according to posts and photos on Twitter, Juan Guaido was still in Florida and meeting with Miami's mayor as of May 18th. I attended a report back from Venezuela on April 17th of this year at Mayday Books. The event was organized by the Solidarity Committee of the Americas, which is a committee of WAM, Women Against Military Madness. Drake Myers and Andrew Josephchak, who gave the talk, are members of the anti-war committee Twin Cities, who just returned from Venezuela at the time. They were part of a delegation to Venezuela organized by Alliance for Global Justice. Here it is. I, I think we can get started with the, the main presentation. Um, Drake's about to give a little bit of background history on uh, you know recent Venezuelan history. Um, but before we get to that, I just wanted to say why we went there in the first place. So the, the anti-war committee has done Venezuelan solidi solidarity work for years. Um, and we have, for you know the entirety of the committee's existence, uh, campaigned against sanctions and maintained that sanctions are an act of war sanctions kill people. They're not some kind of, um, you know, uh, victimless alternative to war that's, you know, just mm -hmm. uh, lowering business incomes or something. They, they, they kill. And uh, Venezuela is the most heavily sanctioned country in the world at the moment. And it is the country, uh, uh, it is a country where sanctions have had a, hi, how you doing? Um, it's a country where sanctions have had a absolutely devastating impact. Um, yeah. At the height of the sanctions during the pandemic, um, there were uh, more than 40,000, uh, no, actually pre-pandemic, sorry, pre-pandemic, yeah. there were more than 40,000 excess deaths a year um, in Venezuela, and that's directly attributable, attributable to U.S. sanctions. Um, so we had the opportunity to go on this trip, and... Um, Another important element of why we went is that Venezuela has been heavily targeted by U.S. media campaigns. Um, it's been uh, sorry. Can people hear me? I need to. Do I need to project project a little more? Um, uh, yeah. Um, if you turn on the TV and there's a news story about Venezuela, what you're going to hear is that you know it's a dictatorship. There's no political freedom. The people are starving due to the you know mismanagement of the the terrible government and so on and so on and so on. Um, that's not the reality. That's not what we saw. And it's really important to go on delegations like this um, because countries that are the targets of U.S. imperialism are also targets of the media who work for U.S. imperialism. So with with that being said, I want to turn it over to to Drake for a bit of um, recent Venezuelan history. Yeah, so I'll start with the very basics. Here's where Venezuela is. It's just on the other side of the Gulf of Mexico from uh, the United States, and it has the largest oil, uh, oil, um, what do you call it? Reserve, an oil reserve. The largest oil reserve on the planet, or in a country. Because I think the Gulf, all told, has more, but Venezuela in one country has more than any of those states. So, for a long time, the United States was able to just drink that oil with a straw, and now it's, it's being used for the social good there. And that's, that's a, a primary reason why they're the target of, of U.S. sanctions and, and warfare and coups, all that. So, here's a map. 90% of people live up here in the extension of the Andes that goes to Caracas and the coast there in the northwest. And then um, there's Maracaibo where a lot of the oil deposits are. And Lake Maracaibo has so much oil under it that the lake has a surface level of oil. And even back uh, before colonialism, um, 
before colonization, the indigenous people knew about the oil there and used it for different things. Um, and then in the southeast, there's these uh, amazing mountains called Tepuis that are like these flat top cubic mountains and you can see the springs coming down as waterfalls. We didn't see any of this, to be honest, but it's a beautiful feature there. And the tallest uh, waterfall in the world is uh, Salto Angel or uh, Angel Falls. And um, it's a spring to the top of this tepui that then pours over. So that's the tallest in the world. But, uh, and there's, you know, uncategorized species there on top of those tepuis. And scientists go on, uh, you know, delegations of their own there to try and categorize those species. And they have to work with indigenous people who are put into control of uh, that whole process. So they need a guide to be able to go up there. And it's very rare to get that kind of access. Um, anything else to say about it? Well, there's this big Llanos Plain. And then there's the Orinoco River that goes through it. That's the second biggest next to the Amazon. And a little bit of the Amazon rainforest is, is in... Um, is uh, there and where I'm pointing right now in the south. So I know we said recent history. I'll speed it up. More or less recent Yeah, history. 1811, so recent. But, uh, it's relevant to recent <laughs> Yes, very relevant because the Chavista and Chavez revolution is a, is a Bolivarian revolution, and they hearken back to this guy, Simon Bolivar, and his ideas. Um, he was the liberator figure of um, not just Venezuela, but he was Venezuelan. But um, of Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and he had a lot of radical ideas about, uh, you know, having a classless society in Venezuela, um, trying to abolish slavery, all these things. So those ideas and that patriotism for Venezuela is what Chavez eventually draws on. But that was in 1811. After Bolivar, there's a series of dictators, including this president. Marcos Perez Jimenez until 58 when he was overthrown by a popular movement of, you know, different radical groups, communists, socialists, uh, unionists, overthrew him. And then three political parties signed this pact called uh, the Punto Fijo uh, Pact. And so Punto Fijismo, or the general movement of those two parties, kind of like here where there's just two parties and they more or less agree on, on everything, but there's some differences, you know. Uh, they ruled the political landscape um, from that point forward after the overthrow of this dictator. So, and they still, those parties are the opposition parties to uh, Chavista, um, Chavistas today. So here's the, the final um, person before, um, before Chavez was Carlos Andres um, per Perez, yeah. Perez. Yeah. Um, and so he came in and uh, he promised uh, social reforms and um, he talked a big game, uh, left-wing game, and then when he gets in, he uh, was just another neoliberal uh, puppet of global capital. You know, uh, he passed the typical neoliberal reforms, which means, like, curtailing all the social programs and just uh, uh, the rich get richer, all that stuff, so... Um, because of that, one, one, overnight, one time, <laughs> there was, uh, the, the oil prices were doubled and the bus prices were doubled. So people rose up, as you can imagine, that's the kind of thing that makes people really upset. And the poor people in the, 
Caracas, rose up in this Caracazo, which is just another way of saying like an uprising, adding Azo onto the end of Caracas, where it happened. Um, that was in 1989. And you can see there was looting, and it has a political character. People were taking back what was theirs, and they were tired of starving under neoliberal imposed reforms. Um, and it should be said that those reforms come from Chicago and from, <laughs> you know, people here in the U.S. So in that Caracazo, the National Guard was ordered to kill hundreds and even now we estimate thousands of, of c civilians who, during the, to put down the uprising. Um, and then uh, that led to... Uh, this guy, Hugo Chavez, who was a higher up in the National Guard, but not, not some kind of general or anything. He had been uh, organizing um, secretly left wings, left wingers in the National Guard um, for some in a couple decades by then. But um, they came out as the Movimiento Bolivariano Revolucionario, so uh, 200 because it was 200 years after Bolivar's birth. So um, they rose up and tried to coup Carlos Andres Perez. Um, and because of their name, the Perez government thought they had like 200, uh, you know, high-ranking mm -hmm. army members on their team, but they were not quite so many people. And they their coup attempts did fail, uh, and they were... Um, the ones who survived were thrown in prison. So, they, they lingered there, but they weren't quiet. They talked to the people, and, the, and they became heroes of that movement of the Caracazo, the people who were upset with Perez's neoliberalism. And they became uh, the figureheads of that popular outrage at neoliberalism, especially Chavez. And the people loved them so much that they put pressure on the government to, to release them from prison without... Um, any further holding or charges. So Chavez gets out and he runs for president in 1998 and he's extremely popular at the time as the true alternative to Punto Fijismo and the ruling parties that existed previously. He made his own new party um, as a coalition of previously existing left parties. And his movement was a uh, it was uh, hearkening back to that Bolivarian, um, those ideals of egalitarianism and humanitarianism, and not, not yet socialist, but um, hearkening back to that. So at first, uh, the U.S. thought that they could work with him. Um, you know, they've worked with lots of people in Latin America. To Obviously, his, his uh, predecessor they were able to work with, even though he talked about socialism and <laughs> radical redistributions of wealth, they were able to get him to institute neoliberalism. So they thought they could with Chavez, but they were wrong. He was, uh, he was not just talk, although he was a lot of talk, and he had this talk show every Sunday where people could call in, Alo Presidente, and he uh, used his pulpit um, during the U.S. War on Terror to uh, show the victims of the U.S. War on Terror. He he didn't mince words, and he condemned those invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and he even spoke in front of the UN. He called Bush the devil. 
And uh, it just wasn't something that leaders on the global stage were doing at the time. And so he distinguished himself as an anti-imperialist globally. And there were coup attempts against him. The biggest one is this 2002 coup attempt. It's in the movie, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. That's on YouTube if you want to check it out. But um, there's been a total of six major coup attempts. Although with the sanctions regime, it's like people are dying every day. Like there's a coup attempt every day, basically, with that, with the blockade and the sanctions. And, oh yeah, so Hugo Chavez gets sick of, with cancer and, and passes away in 2013. Um, and he was pretty young. It's, it's a tragedy. He's been dead 10 years now. But in 2015, uh, Obama declared Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to our national security, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, they, don't, they don't have nukes or anything. You know, it, you're talking about the United States, the biggest military complex in history. They're not a threat to us, but uh, that's the way it was. And that was used as a pretext to pass sanctions and, um, you know, uh, empower money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, here's a sign that says Chavez is alive from that era. Chavez is alive. Obama, we don't accept uh, Yankee sanctions. Uh, kind of says, like, go to hell, basically. <laughs> and, yeah, the anti-imperialism graffiti. So uh, since 2013, when Chavez died, the president, the successor handpicked by Chavez is Nicolas Maduro, who was uh, came up through um, bus the bus union and the metro transit union there. Um, he was a union boss. Yeah. yeah. I should say, when, when Drake says handpicked, it doesn't mean that he was appointed by Chavez or something in some kind of like nepotistic way. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he was kind of Chavez's right-hand man. They were very close. Chavez trusted him as like a political successor, but he was elected, absolutely. Um, and, yeah. yeah. And then next to him is Delcy Rodriguez. That's the vice president. Um, she also came up through radical politics. Her dad was a Maoist who was killed by the government. Um, so some interesting history with them. Maduro also, his parents were political. Chavez too. Um, there's Maduro during COVID, you know, uh, giving a big speech at a rally. They have huge political rallies, it seems like. And just some pictures from over the years. <laughs> of uh, Venezuela protests that the anti-war committee has done 2018, since I've been involved at least. I think it goes back longer than that. And then uh, last year we had this Venezuelan activist, Dos Torres Lent, speaking here. And that's another important way to uh, break the media blockade of it all, um, to have voices actually come and share some accomplishments. And his speech was really powerful for that. I think that's it. I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much. Yeah. That is really thorough history. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, yeah, we want to talk a bit about some of um, what we saw there, of course. Um, and we're going to start off with louder. some of these. Um, sorry? Louder. Oh, louder. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, we're going to start off with some of these social programs. Um, the uh, the CLAP, the Carnet de la Patria, and uh, Van App are three that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. So this slide here is a picture of um, these identification cards called the Carnet de la Patria um, that uh, we saw, we uh, 
we talked with some socialist leaders down there who, who showed, it to, uh, showed them to us, and we're very proud of this program. It's, um, you could think of it kind of like uh, an ID card, like a government ID, plus a social security card, plus like a Medicaid card, plus a lot more. Um, all Venezuelans are eligible to sign up for these. Um, you, uh, more than, I think, 80% uh, of the population has enrolled. And that's actually um, kind of almost a deceiving number because in rural areas, there are particular programs that um, rural people are eligible for and these Carne de la Patria uh, don't apply so much to the rural people. So that, uh, that enrollment figure is actually kind of lower than it maybe implies, if that makes sense. Um, so when you sign up for one of these, Mm -hmm. You fill out a, a kind of questionnaire you get uh, that asks things like, are, are you currently pregnant? Do you have any uh, illnesses? Do you have any disabilities? Uh, all sorts of questions about anything that might impact what you need to, um, you know, live your life in a fulfilling way, really. And, it and these questions influence um, what you're eligible to get from your Carne de la Patria. Um, there's um, kind of the main thing is it gives you access to a massive amount of, uh, of subsidies. Things on like food, oil, basic necessities are subsidized through this program. Um, you can also put money on the card and use it almost like a credit card. Um, you get access to medicine. Um, and it's more than just, this might to some people sound sort of like programs that we have in the US like food stamps or something, but I wanna emphasize that it is a lot more than that because all of this information that uh, that you give to the government in order to get what's uh, what's necessary for you is used to centrally plan uh, the distribution of resources in Venezuela. So if if you're telling the government, oh, I'm I'm expecting a child, that not only tells the government that um, you know you need certain extra subsidies or certain extra supplies, it also tells the the government how many people need those supplies in the country, who needs them and how to get them there. It, um, so it makes the distribution of resources way more efficient, which is extremely important because of the sanctions. You know, the U.S. has made it so difficult for, um, you know, b businesses to run, for people to get food, medicine, basic, mm -hmm. basic supplies. And um, a statistic I actually just found out recently is that when the sanctions were implemented, the revenue of the government of Venezuela shrunk by 99 percent. So they're they're operating, or they were operating when the sanctions were first implemented, at least on one percent of their previous capacity. Programs like this make a huge difference in um, allowing the government to serve the people the best with what they have when what they have is so diminished by yeah. the United States. Um, Here's just another picture. They've got you know these QR codes on the back that you can use. Um, here's another program um, that's fairly new. It was implemented about a year ago. Um, it's called Ven App, and uh, once again, all Venezuelans could sign up for this. It's an app you use on your phone, um, and this is for uh, the government to address mun municipal issues. If you have a problem in your neighborhood, the electricity goes out, your water's not working, there's potholes, things like that, you can. Um, directly ask for them to be addressed through this app. Um, you can make one request every day. Um, and uh, they've, they told us, although the, the app has existed for a year, the statistic that we were given when we talked to um, 
actually we, we got to speak with the woman who's in charge of running this program um, as a staff of, of a few hundred people just working on this um, that in the last eight months alone they've addressed more than a million municipal issues and again this is a, a route that the government there has found to centralize their their um, their ability to plan and to uh, distribute resources more efficiently again because uh, the sanctions has made this this kind of thing very necessary and it helps people get better services from the government um, <clears throat> this here is a picture of a clap box um, clap stands for local committees for supply and production of course in in, in Spanish um, Spanish acronym um, you can see uh, it, th these are basically boxes of food that are delivered to Venezuelan households. Um, you get two boxes a month. It may not look like a lot, but these were a lifeline to people through the height of the sanctions. Um, uh, you know, again, very basic supplies, but these supplies were so difficult to get. It's getting a lot better now um, due to programs like this and due to the, um, you know, industry and, um, and uh business and agriculture has all ramped up but um, especially through the pandemic this this sort of stuff genuinely saved lives you know undoubtedly thousands and thousands and thousands of lives um, I also want to emphasize with this um, it's it's again not the same as social programs that we have here in that here you know if you want to go on uh, food stamps or Medicaid or you know something like that it's always means tested right you got to prove that you really deserve it, that you're poor enough to deserve it. That's not the case with these programs there. These are these are programs that everyone in Venezuela can sign up for. It's uh, it's something that's like you know the right of every citizen to have access to programs like this, which is completely different from uh, how how uh, you know government programs that are intended to help people run in the U.S. You know, in the U.S. it's like. Uh, well, we'll help you if you can prove that you're desperate enough. But in Venezuela, it's like we think everyone deserves help. Um, There's a very different attitude with uh, the programs there. Okay. So I want to just talk a little bit about how they arrived at more food sovereignty. So Venezuela used to import 60%. 80%? Uh, 80% plus, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, so they used to import 80% of their food. And this is a country where they could easily grow enough food to, to even export, you know. Um, because it's very fertile land, they, it's like one of the most natural places to grow cocoa. And they were importing chocolate from Belgium. So it doesn't really make sense. But it has to do with how, uh, you know, the, the, uh, how it was... Uh, how the whole economic system was set up in a backwards way due to colonialism and stuff like that. So, but um, so here's Caracas, some pictures. There's the hotel we stayed at. We went to this park right after we got there. Um, there's people doing tai chi and eating some ice cream. But uh, and there's some kids. But this park had a. Uh, uh, Feria Conuquera Agroecológica, which is like a, Conuquera is like a small farm or a family farm. So it was like a farmer's market, um, agroecological farmer's market. And they don't just do, uh, you know, selling. They also, this, this organization that does it, they're Chavista, but they're not um, associated with the government. Um, 
but they they have like uh, educational events about uh, teaching people how to uh, farm organically. And one of their big campaigns is defending this uh, really revolutionary seed law that got passed there in 2015. Because um, if you see the sign, it says, uh, Libre, por un Venezuela libre de transgenicos. And it's like, for a Venezuela free of transgenics or, or um, GMOs, basically. Because uh, they see that as key to their fight for food sovereignty and sovereignty generally. Because if you sign up... Uh, for Monsanto seeds, you know, you had to buy Monsanto fertilizer, and you had to buy Monsanto. Uh, what do you What do you use to get rid of bugs? What is that called? Uh, pesticides. pesticides. I'm not, my words are not coming well tonight. <laughs> um, but so you had to sign up almost like a Netflix subscription. Like every year, you had to pay Monsanto, and they can control everything that you produce. They even tell you what kind of crops to grow. So for them. And imagine being under a blockade where they can just rip that rug out from under you and everyone starves. They want to make an actually sovereign food situation in Venezuela. So this seed law that got passed after Chavez died, um, it forbids GMOs. So they're illegal. Um, and uh, that allows people to propagate their own seeds and um, uh, start taking farming back into their own hands as Venezuelans. So this, this uh, farmer's market, though, it brings people from around Caracas into Caracas to sell their foods, helps them set that up, uh, that arrangement, and um, teaches them how to do it with organic fertilizers and non-GMOs. So it was really cool to hear about that, which has like this relationship to the grand scale, but also such a small scale. And I talked to one of the leaders there, uh, this Chavisa named Giselle Perdomo, and she talked to me uh, also personally about her struggles as a mom under the worst of the sanctions in 2017, 18, 19. Um, she had a, a, a boy who was born under, under sanctions. And um, so when she was in delivery, they didn't have the right equipment. He was born with some uh, defects and problems. And he had trouble breathing throughout his life and needed anti-seizure medication. And the anti-seizure medication was not available always in the country because of the blockade. That's U.S. policy. Um, and even she told me when she used to take him to the hospital, these hospitals were, uh, you know, the lights would fl flicker on and off and electricity would be hard to come by. Little kids were lining up to use the only ventilator that worked and they couldn't import ventilators. I imagine that was hellish during COVID too. Um, but it was a very hellish situation she described and um and she lost her son when he was six because of this and uh so she told me you know this is a war like any other war it doesn't use bombs but it uses sanctions and people are still dying and people should be outraged but part of the whole idea of an e economic war or a hybrid war is that it's so hidden that people in America don't even care. It doesn't seem like a war on Venezuela, but hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. It is a war. And her son was killed. And now she goes to the pharmacy and she sees those anti-seizure medicines are, are widely available, um, but it's, it's cold comfort for her. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's really hard to hear stories like that. Um, and there were many while we were there. Um, but she's running this fair, uh, she had a lot of hope. She has a young daughter um, who's, who's doing really well, and she was very funny in interrupting our interview. 
which is fine. I, yeah, she's a kid. Um, but yeah, uh, so things are, are looking better and there's food is more widely available. Um, another thing that she told me that was interesting is that uh, Venezuelans, you know, they're used to eating international foods that, that don't really grow in Venezuela. And now they're having to learn how to eat foods that grow there. So there's this purple yam that like is an indigenous uh, food that grows there. But nobody even knows what it is, and they think it's some kind of beet. So she was telling me she has to, like, uh, she makes, like, bread out of it to try and convince people to try it even. Because <laughs> you can imagine it's it's weird to try new foods. But, uh, yeah, so they're having some successes there. Um, in the park, too, they were giving out vaccines, which was pretty cool. They were giving people check checkups um, for free in the park there. Uh, it was some kind of uh, campaign to combat obesity. Um, and they were giving out uh, different sporting equipment, too, to kids, and people were dancing. So that was pretty cool. <clears throat> Next section. Yeah. Um, so after we um, had been in Caracas for a few days, we got the opportunity to travel a little bit. We headed to uh, Valencia. Perfect timing, Trey. Yeah. <laughs> um, Valencia is a, uh, a pretty industrial city. It's located in a province called Carabobo, which is kind of the industrial heart of Venezuela, most heavily industrialized region in the country. Um, and uh, when we were there, we got to um, uh, to meet up with. Uh, well, we got to we got to spend some time in some communes there. There are uh, there are a number of communes throughout Venezuela. Um, we we saw uh, two of them. Um, one of them being in the in Valencia, and I, I remember uh, when when Dostar Zerlent visited here. Uh, actually, one of the things that really stuck to, with me when uh, when he he uh, spoke at a at a uh, an event we hosted was about these communes and how um, the uh, the the socialists in Venezuela see these communes as sort of planting the seeds of socialism throughout the country. That they 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 aim to kind of develop these communes and, and use them to, to build socialism um, in Venezuela. So we traveled to this, this park here that's uh, shown right now where we met up with uh, a feminist farmers organization called the Mujeres Conaqueras, which um, again, Drake already mentioned, but Conaqueras yeah. is, yeah, like small farmer, family farmer. So, so um, you know, family farm women, basically, is the, the literal translation. Um, and these are uh, activist farmers who work in this commune um, and who have been reclaiming the land. Um, when, the, uh, when the sanctions hit, and also just over the years in Venezuela, um, foreign, com foreign companies have pulled out, um, co uh, companies that have been you know, local to Venezuela have uh, at times become unprofitable due to sanctions. Um, but the government there does not see if you've got if you've got a big uh, swath of agricultural land and it becomes unprofitable for a company to uh, to use that land, or if a foreign company owns that land and pulls out, the government of Venezuela doesn't see it as making any sense to let that land, you know, just lie fallow or get over overcome by weeds. They see it as something that the people should reclaim and use. Um, so these. Uh, 
these women, and, and not only women, actually, I should add, there were a number of men uh, in this organization, too. And one of the interviewers actually asked, you know, we, we see a lot of men here, too. What, could, you, could, could you talk about that, you know, in this feminist organization? And, and the men all, all said, yeah, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we need to be feminists. Uh, we're proud feminists. And we're here because, you know, we, we joined with this organization to, uh, uh, you know, fight patriarchal ideas among you know among other men you know uh actually it was it was kind of charming this one awesome. this one older guy he, he when the question was asked he stepped forward and he said um uh i i am a feminist because my commandante chavez insisted i must be you know it was it was it was uh it was great but um, anyways, right. so they've, uh, they've reclaimed all this land on the commune, and this is uh, what they call a mixed commune there, and what that means is that it contains both industrial and agricultural uh, land, all on, all on this, this one, the purview of this one commune. And um, the farming practices they've implemented have been so successful that uh, I, more than 60% of the food consumed on that commune is now... Uh, pit, uh, planted, uh, harvested, packed, uh, shipped off to a processing facility, packaged and delivered and consumed all within the commune itself. Yeah. And the fact that it's, you know, a lot of it's industrial means it's not just like these farmers are feeding themselves. It means they're feeding themselves and having enough of a surplus to feed a lot of other people who aren't farming. And they, they told us that they had only fairly recently like they said like three years ago we were we were harvesting with machetes you know uh, these uh, they showed us their hands it shows you know old scars and blisters and stuff but now the government has given them more heavy equipment so they're becoming more and more productive so in the future it's they're going to be feeding even more people than they already are and this is all self-directed again they they took the land they farm it how they want to we asked you know well how does that work how do you make decisions and they said well you know, if we have a disagreement about what we should be doing or how we should be proceeding, we, we call a meeting, everyone gets together, and we talk it through and decide on a plan of action. Um, and that's a kind of, uh, you know, I don't get to do that at work, you know. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's very democratic and controlled by the workers themselves there uh, in, within the commune. Um, I actually shared with them... Um, we, we, we talked for a long time with, uh, with uh, these, these couple of young guys who, who were great. They, were, they really, you know, um, wanted to sort of share details about life on the, on the commune and, and farming there. Um, I keep interrupting myself, but I, I also want to add, uh, a lot of them were really young, and that was interesting because, like Jake already said, because of, like, the oil exports, the, the export-based economy of the past, Farming has been um, a neglected area of industry in Venezuela. So a lot of these people were very young, and um, they said they have kind of like elders in the community that they really look up to who know the old, uh, older traditional practices, um, and plus more modern practices, but they've had to turn to some more traditional ones due to uh, U.S. sanctions denying them access to um, certain more modern techniques. Um, but these are, you know, in the U.S., m most people I, I know who, who farm is because, like, their family, you know, uh, their family farmed or something like that. There it's, like, uh, a whole generation sort of taking up the task of farming and, and you know, feeding their, their own country. Um, sorry, cut myself off. Um, we talked to these two, we, we talked to these, uh, these couple young guys for a long time, 
And uh, I was so inspired hearing them talk about being um, able to take, take back the land, control it themselves, feed themselves, um, you know, feed, uh, feed their fellow Venezuelans that uh, I told them a bit about the Roof Depot uh, fight here in uh, in Minneapolis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Does does everyone is everyone no here? Demo. Sorry, no demo. <laughs> no, no demo. That's right. Is everyone uh, in the room familiar with the Roof Depot fight? Can you raise your hand if you you haven't heard much about it? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Basics. The basics are in uh, the East Phillips neighborhood here in Minneapolis. Um, there is a um, a building, an old industrial site that's. Um, it's 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 owned by the city at this point. It's been repossessed. It's sitting on a, a plume of arsenic, and they want to demolish it, which is going to poison the whole neighborhood more than it's already poisoned. It's a very polluted neighborhood. Um, want to speak to it? Yeah. Not to mention, the Roof Depot is situated right next to the Little Earth community, yeah. Yeah. the yeah. largest yeah. urban indigenous population yeah. in Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah, it's it, possibly the entire country, but yeah, it, 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 I think it is in the entire yeah. country. They, yeah. And the Little Earth community suffers to like extremely high rates of cancer, diabetes, mm -hmm. all kinds. asthma too. Yeah, already yeah. Yes. as it is, thirteen percent asthma rate. Yeah. So the um, the the community there wanted to, to repossess this building and turn it into an urban farm, something good for the community instead of something poisoning to the community. And yeah, I I I have been fighting I, for decades. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, more than a decade now. Um, I so I told uh, these these farmers about it. And I told them, you know, it's it's so inspiring hearing you talk about your government, you know, not not only not denying you the land, but actively giving it to you, telling you do do something with this, make use of it, feed the country with it, and we're going to give you the supplies you need, the machinery you need. You know, it's just the complete inverse picture. You know, um, and um, and and he, uh, you know, they they, they were uh, really interested in the story and kind of nodding along when I, when I was done, um, uh, <laughs> God, it, it hit me so hard. He said, he just nodded and he said, um, yeah, that's because in my country we have democracy <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we, and we have freedom. And I actually teared up cause it hit me like, you know, I felt like he's right. You know, I mean, he, he's, he's really yeah. right. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, uh, this, Sorry to go on about it so long, but talking to these farmers was one of the most sort of moving um, experiences of the whole trip for me, for me at least, yeah. Yeah, it was um, deep. And we should say that there's all kinds of ways in which uh, things have been reclaimed by the people and the government facilitates that. There was a casino in Caracas that has been turned into a skate park and, and people are just having music and stuff there every night. Um, there were... Uh, there were other examples too. I guess yeah, factories yeah. have been turned over to workers. There, yeah. We went to a zoo that um, shut down. Uh, it was a private zoo, and now it's been reclaimed by the workers who used to work there, and they've restarted it, and now it's uh, it's put in service of the community there, handing out like anti venom for snake bites, and um, it's it's uh, very cheap to go there now. Um, so there was a lot of cool examples of things being reclaimed by the people. Um, so housing, this is a short section. Okay, so they've built 4.4 million of these free and low-cost housing units, and we were able to see them all over the place, but here's a couple pictures we took, and here's a picture from Google. But they all look like this, basically. And, um, and that, it was an amazing thing because uh, there, I didn't see any unhoused people. We saw one person sleeping on the street in Caracas. It's a major, huge city that's very busy. Um, so it was a stunning difference than here. Um, so, you know, some people live in uh, 
in conditions that we wouldn't see here, like in, in the kinds of like favela, like uh, corrugated steel housing and stuff. Um, but everybody, see, everybody has a home to sleep in at night. And uh, housing is a human right in Venezuela now. They, a lot of these windows uh, don't have uh, glass panes. And that's like throughout Venezuela. Like it was, it was actually just so nice that you could have no window panes. <laughs> just yeah. temper it like all year, I guess. I don't know. Um, you can talk about internationalism. Uh, oh, oh, can I just add to the housing? Oh, yeah, too? yeah. yeah. Um, it's, uh, one of the things that's really incredible, too, is not only have they built these millions of homes, that's, that's a number over the past uh, 15 years, but it's, like, ramped up so sharply that, like, half yeah. of those have been built in the last three two, like, years. Three yeah. years, <laughs> yeah. So this, this project pr providing housing and um, is, is ramping up so quickly. It's just incredible. And, yeah, the, like, you saw those photos of the construction. Like, we saw them being, being built everywhere. Yeah. And the, you know, we're about to talk about internationalism, but the contractors are, are Russian, Chinese, um, different international contractors taking these um, because of the embargo. Internationalism, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> we saw uh, a lot of really wonderful internationalism yeah. throughout Venezuela. Yeah. Um, you can see here is a, a, a mural, a Palestine mural. We saw loads of Palestine murals all over the place. We couldn't get um, a picture of one, so this is just from Google, but they were yeah. everywhere. Yeah, every time we saw one, we were like <laughs> on a bus, and we'd like jump up to try and yeah. snap a photo, and we would miss it every single time. Yeah. But we, I, I, I swear, we saw like, like dozens <laughs> of uh, free Palestine murals. Um, this here is a picture of a... Um, Iran Venezuela uh, friendship fair. Yeah, yeah. We actually have a couple of the flyers <laughs> here that were being that were, uh, you know, uh, kind of all over the place. And this was going on the whole time we were there. Um, it actually ended the the day we were leaving. That was the last day. Um, it was uh, in this uh, sort of central square in uh, in Caracas, um, and uh, they had all sorts of stuff going on at the fair. Um, they had. Uh, uh, this this uh, sort of central stage where um, yeah oh wait, oh wait let's see where the stage is sorry I don't know I, Maybe I, got I don't have up the that. stage okay uh, they had a central <laughs> stage where there was a, a sort of political theater going on the whole time mm -hmm. um, this the uh, various uh, uh, various plays about uh, mostly about U.S. imperialism and particularly torture um, and political prisoners yeah um, they had. Uh, uh, a bunch of like educational uh, stuff going on. They had, um, if you go to the, they had all this political art that I, I really love this uh, art. A lot of it, of course, is also uh, uh, Palestinian solidarity art. Um, yeah. There was, there was a really good one. Do you have the one with the dollar as a razor blade on here? No. Don't have it. I really like that. Um, any, anyways, sorry. They had really, yeah, it's all political cartoons type stuff. Um, we saw, it might be a little can hard to see. Can you see it? Yeah. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah. In the background there is a, uh, a George Floyd mural. Um, oh, wow. um, uh, yeah, and we actually went to um, uh, a modern art museum in Caracas and uh, saw an exhibit. First thing that was interesting about the exhibit was that it was uh, funded by, uh, uh, by the Chinese government. And the people who were giving us a little tour said, yeah, you know, China has been super supportive in sort of keeping the lights on for Venezuelan art. Because, of course, due to the 
due to the U.S. sanctions, the government has so little resources to work with that things like art, um, you know, could, could, could be overlooked. But their, you know, international friends of Venezuela have really helped, um, uh, helped artists, you know, keep, keep making stuff. They show, the, the, the gallery itself was an international collaborative uh, uh, art gallery. But in that gallery, one of the artists had uh, done a couple pieces that were, that had like Black Lives Matter slogans on them. Um, so that was that was really interesting uh, as well, and you know people had heard of the Black Lives Matter movement here, um, so it, it was it was really cool, um, you know, seeing that uh, in Venezuela. Yeah, Minneapolis has distinguished itself worldwide as the killer cop capital. So <laughs> our reputation precedes us. Um, of course, there were a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of Cuba solidarity uh, yeah. uh, art murals, etc., all over the place as well. Um, pictures of Che and Fidel are, are kind of all over the place. Yeah. Um, there's another one of Che with a Venezuelan flag as well. Anything that you would add to the inter the international? Oh, um, it was really positive. It was beautiful. Yeah. Um, I I completely forgot to mention what Drake started off talking with. Um, yeah, uh, international. Uh, Solidarity from uh, countries that have been willing to violate U.S. sanctions. Yeah. So, um, a, a lot of people we talk to, uh, both you know, just ordinary working class people and plus you know politicians and so on too, uh, talked about what a help, um, uh, uh, you know, like R Russian engineers or Iranian engineers have been to the country. Um, there's been like a lot of brain drain in Venezuela, you know, understandably, some people with the resources to to leave have, have chosen to leave. Um, so having access to to not only goods from countries like Iran, but to knowledge and technology has been um, a really big deal in helping Venezuela not only make it through the sanctions, but start to sort of rebuild their infrastructure, rebuild their industry, even while yeah. they're under these these. Uh, you these know, sanctions. one third of all humans are under some form of U.S. sanctions. So at this point, the U.S. has has you know that's going to have a boomerang effect, and now there's an entire part of the world that can't do business with us, mm -hmm. and we'll do business together. So mm -hmm. Absolutely. it's an interesting thing to see happening. There are also thousands of Cuban doctors in Venezuela. Thousands yeah. Of yeah. Did you have some? Um, oh, uh, well, well, maybe we'll, we'll take we'll, questions. Can you end. hold on to? It? We're going to do a Q and A at the end. Okay. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. We'll try and, and move fast because I think we're taking a long time. Yeah, on we're we're a little behind. That but time. this was a beautiful thing um, to see healthcare in a in a poor <laughs> commune um, in Valencia again. But this, so the, they take these uh, uh, medical vans around. They had four of them, it's not in the picture, but, and they go to four different places every week, um, having pop-up uh, medical events. So what that means is they can take 120 uh, mainly dental appointments in a day in these communes where it's the poor, they wouldn't have had access to this without this, so, um, or before the Chavista revolution. And I don't know if you, th so these are like the mascots of the different, uh, the, this one's the mayor of, of Valencia's mascot, and then this is the governor Lacava's mascot, and then Maduro has this superhero with a mustache. So, um, but yeah, so that that kind of iconography was on everything. Um, people were waiting and, and hanging out. There were bouncy castles for the kids, and it was kind of like a 
uh, kind of like a county fair vibe, but people were getting a lot of free services, so a little different than a f county fair. Um, people were getting, you know, basic dental care, uh, but all the way to minor dental surgeries um, in those appointments, and, and different family medicine um, was being done there, too, in those appointments. Plus health advice, too. Yeah, yeah. And so then uh, there was this tent area where they were taking people's, uh, you know, ID, Carne de la Patria cards, and, and giving them different over-the-counter drugs. Uh, there was even uh, people getting haircuts for free there. There was all kinds of care um, on display. There were paralegals. Uh, it, it was interesting how many things were, were being done. Skin care. Uh, yeah. And then over here, uh, was they were giving away some specific goods that people had asked for, um, like, uh, you know, uh, walkers, uh, um, wheelchairs. wheelchairs, yes, um, you can see that. They were also giving away these little baby kits, which are like a bathtub and a, and a you know, a, a crib and a <laughs> shirt and and diapers and everything all in one with with a with a little owl to go with it, which is kind of nice. Too. But the guy, the mayor, did kind of look like an owl. But he had the glasses and, and everything. But um, yeah, so it was it was really uh, powerful to see this, you know. And it's clear to me that that they see the the poor as their as their political base. So there's an element of it where they're pandering to their base, you know what I mean? They're trying to give them everything that they can, can to get them to vote for them. But it's like, you don't see that here. Like, you don't yeah. see uh, even a quid pro quo in politics here. <laughs> they don't give us anything and we have to like it. So, yeah. I, you know, it was, it was beautiful to see. Um, yeah, it's yeah funny, they're more responsive. It's funny because, yeah, yeah you, you make a really good point. In the media here, it's like, you know, the media will point to stuff like this and say, well, they're bribing the voters with services. It's like, yeah, you mean helping I, people? <laughs> you know? I'll take it. I'll take the bribe. <laughs> okay, so we'll end with our big campaign that, we're, that we've connected with that we're going forward with here, and then there's a national campaign, so we can go through this. Yeah, so um, have uh, we'll do another show of hands. How many people up here have heard of Alex Saab? There he is. He's right behind you. Yeah. Yeah, there he is. Okay. Um, so Alex Saab is a, um, a Venezuelan diplomat. Um, he, um, oh yeah, there's, there's a, little, uh, a little blurb about him. He's a Venezuelan diplomat who was kidnapped um, in Cabo Verde off the, uh, the coast of Africa. Yeah, there it is. <clears throat> oh, yeah, here we have a cartoon, too. small island nation off the coast, off the west coast of Africa. Yeah, um, and uh, he, he had a diplomatic passport on him. The U.S. kidnapped him, extradited him, and has now imprisoned him in, uh, in Miami Federal Detention Center. So this is complete violation of international law. Um, you can't kidnap a diplomat. Yeah, you cannot kidnap. <laughs> There's no precedent, no. you know. Yeah. Um, and the the U.S.'s case against him, well, they're, they're calling him corrupt. They're saying he was a corrupt businessman. He was a businessman um, before he became a diplomat for the Venezuelan government. You know, um, the, the government basically approached him and said, um, you know, you're someone who, who knows business. Will you help us make it through these sanctions? Will you help us rebuild industry and agriculture and feed the people and bring medicine to the people? And he said yes. Um, we met with, if you can go back to the picture of his wife, yeah. um, we met with his, his wife, Camila Fabri Sam, 
Um, there we are with her. And one of the things she said when, when we met her was, you know, um, my husband knew he was risking his life um, when, when he took that mission on, but he, he couldn't, he basically couldn't stand by, you know, and watch, um, uh, watch people the country, yeah, yeah, watch yeah. people starve, watch the country be immiserated by U.S. sanctions when, mm -hmm. when he could do something to help. Um, he really is like a genuine national hero there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'll show some, some people there protesting for him. Yeah. In Valencia, they have a big movement there. They, you know, they're, they're, whenever we post anything, free Alex Saab, hashtag free Alex Saab, a million people will share it because he's just very popular and beloved. Um, yeah, the more you learn about this story, the more disturbing yeah. it, it gets. Basically, he was on a private plane um, that he um, uh, was using to travel uh, down the west coast of Africa um, from, from some, uh, you know, from some appointment he had with someone who was willing to defy the U.S. sanctions and you know provide Venezuela with with uh, with basic necessities, and um, the you know the plane hailed various uh, airports to land. They needed to refuel. Um, no, and no one was allowing them to land until they got to Cabo Verde. It's now come out by, from the mouths of U.S. officials themselves bragging about it. Yeah. That they did, they 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 orchestrated this. Oh. They uh, they they told all these nations that they had you know some diplomatic leverage with, don't let him land, and they said and 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 um, I'm I'm going to paraphrase, but it's almost a quote from um, was is it Bolton or well, I think it's Bolton's yeah, book. Yeah, he put Bolton's out a book. book. Bolton's book. He says you know we knew we could bully Cabo Verde. He uses the word bully. Because um, they're a small island yeah. nation in Africa, we can bully them, get what we want. Yeah, and so the plane landed to refuel. He's he's kidnapped, you know, and um, you know he was he was beaten in Cabo Verde. Um, he says some of the people who beat him were were um, from the U.S. Um, and now he's been uh, he's been detained for more than a thousand days now. He hasn't seen his family. He has small children. He has one um, daughter who he's basically you know uh, she was like three months old yeah. when he. Uh, when he 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 left to, to start doing this work, so he's basically missed her whole life, um, and he's a cancer survivor and um, has diabetes. He hasn't been allowed to see a doctor the entire time he's been detained. Um, the only medicine that he says he's been given, well, the only medicine he says he's been given. I mean, is, this is, is crazy. Yeah, is is uh, is like Tylenol. But then for, there's another medicine. There's another this medicine. is an insane situation, yeah, and it's, it's a weaponization of psychiatric care because they had tortured him, right? And then they diagnosed him with PTSD from the torture, and they used that as a pretext to drug him out of his mind. So for weeks he was just on the ground, not able to talk to his family or lawyers. And then they, they petitioned and got him to be able to take you know get off those drugs and they never even found out what the drugs were yeah the president the uh, uh camila uh, told us that she couldn't remember the name of the chemical they they think they know what the chemical was but it was because like another prisoner knew like oh i bet i'll bet you they're giving you that you know it, yeah. the the u.s never told them what he was being drugged with um so yeah now there is a, a a massive campaign to free him his health has really declined he started vomiting blood again he's mm -hmm. a stomach cancer survivor so that's not good um and it was pretty clear to us while, while we were there from all the various activists that we talked to that this is something they really want that, that venezuelans want 
anti-war activists in the U.S. to be relating to is the, the, the campaign to free Alex Saab, because it's a very clear, direct demand that we can make of our government, is that this man should be free. He hasn't committed a crime. The U.S. has committed the crime. The, the, um, the premise for his detention is that he's not a real diplomat because the U.S. doesn't recognize the Maduro government as being legitimate. As though we get to decide, you know, as though we get to pick which governments count. Um, it's, you know, the U.S. says they're spreading democracy around the world. That's the excuse every time that we intervene in a country. This is complete, the reverse of democracy. You know, a country elects a leader we don't like, and we say, oh, government doesn't count anymore. We're going to kidnap your diplomats. Yeah. So he's also a trial balloon. You know that maybe they want to do that to other countries in the future. They want to be able to declare which countries are countries and just kidnap their diplomats. Um, and in another way, you know, he's a, a figure that we can um, use to help relate the reality of sanctions and the fight against the blockades that people face all around the world, not just in Venezuela. But when we talk about sanctions and all these protests and and it's important for people to know what sanctions are. It's hard for people to connect with them because we're just talking about economics. Again, it's that aspect of, of hybrid war that makes it like invisible. Like it, it's, it's not a real war because no, you know, there's no bombs, there's no tanks. But um, you know, with, with him as a face, you can see like, uh, the, the kind of like torture that, that uh, US sanctions cause and the pain that it causes families. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's why I think it's a powerful campaign to be involved with. And everyone on the on their chairs has a postcard um, to Anthony Blinken to if you could fill it out um, with with your thoughts on it. And we can we can send it with a stamp if you give it to us, or you can send it. But uh, it'll help just to put pressure on him. And then additionally, we have a week of actions planned for the first week of May um, around the country. Um, because now we're looped in with this uh, coalition to free Alex Saab. We did not include the question and answer section from that meeting because I did not get permission from those in the room to record, but only from the presenters. And that is our special. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special report.